Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information about Home Church, visit us at myhomechurch.org. All right, guys, so we're in Ephesians chapter 2. Um, by just a way of a reminder, especially for those who maybe haven't been with us the last few weeks, but even if you have, uh, we've, we've kind of been sitting on the first 10 verses the last few weeks, um, really just marveling at the, this immeasurable great power that's been demonstrated towards us who believe. And one of the ways that, um, we've, that I've kind of like defined Ephesians chapter 2 is seeing it as it's a picture of salvation. And so the first 10 verses is really about what God has done in Christ by the Spirit more on, a, on an individual level. Like we personally were dead in sin and far from God and, and captive and all these things that we said, but, but God who is rich in mercy has made us alive in Christ. So part of our salvation has this clearly an individualistic aspect. However, that's not the full story. And, uh, and what we're going to see today in verses 11 to 22 is Paul is still laboring to show this immeasurable great power towards us who believe, but it not only reconciled us uh, from our separation from God, but we were also separated from God's people, um, which in this we'll see is actually what would be considered the Jewish people. We were separated from that. And so part of our salvation, what makes it such good news, is that we were not only far from God and brought back to a relationship with God, but we have now been brought into the family of God. And this is actually an incredible part of our salvation. And I will admit in my own life, this probably doesn't strike me as, as, as good of news as it really is for a few reasons. One, because we live in such an individualistic culture in the West, it's really hard to appreciate uh, if, you, if we lived in more of, of, of communal cultures, this is, this is everything. Your, your whole life is based on your clan and your tribe, and this still goes on in many parts of the world. Actually, I think there's only a few places, uh, England, Australia, America, that are really still individualistic cultures. Other ones are very, like, I forget the technical word, but, but tribal, essentially. And I don't mean that in primitive, but just they live, like, it's, it's cultural to, to live by your families. It's everything. And so we've been brought together, and, and I just think that's really important to note because even though we're here today, and I know God meets us in personal ways, we, before God, are not just individuals. And that's, that's really important that God sees us as a house, as a body, and I, there's so much practical application that comes from that because this journey is not about, well, I'm making it, and I hope you do too, but all I'm, care, all I'm caring about as long as I cross that finish line, right? That's not the way that God sees us. That's not the way that Paul sees it. For Paul, his theology in the Old Testament hasn't changed in the New, which is that salvation ultimately is actually not just about individuals being saved, but God saving a people for his namesake and for his purposes. This is what you'll find for, uh, always in the Old Testament. And what Paul sees now is the, what was true of the Jews in the Old Testament has essentially been morphed into the church in the New Testament. And that God is ultimately after a people for his namesake. Amen. So God is not just, although he is, but he's not just saving individuals and preparing them for heaven, but God is literally creating a people on the earth of which he wants to dwell right in the midst of them, right in them, in order that in this people, his name would be glorified and his purposes would go forth unto the earth. It's so incredible that, that God's plan of redemption and the way that he's manifolding his wisdom is through a people now. And the beauty is that every barrier of ethnicity and race and gender, it's all been blown up by the cross and by the spirit of God. Like I look out into this gathering and I see kingdom. 
because I see multi-generational, multi-ethnicity, and that's how it should be. That's, that's the heart of this, that all these barriers have been broken. And through this people, God is making known his ways. So we're like the church is, I mean, I know we know this, but we're not just, uh, it's not about a service on a Sunday. I mean, that's part of our, what we do, but we're the ecclesia. We're the called out ones. God has called a people out of darkness into his marvelous light. And through this group of people, God now is making known his, his ways and his plans. I think it's absolutely beautiful. And Paul, Amen. you know what's so amazing? Gordon Fee, who's a, 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 a scholar I really respect, he actually says, um, you'll see how Paul really understands us now as a people and not so much just persons, just individual. He says, nowhere does it come clearer than in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. And it's kind of like a negative situation, but you really see Paul's theology. Uh, there were some individuals who fell into some really grievous sin, uh, there was some sexual sin that was going on. But what Gordon Fee highlights that really, really rocked me is that when Paul addresses the church, he barely addresses the individuals who were caught up in the sin. That's not because Paul's indifferent to it. That's not because Paul thinks they're victims. But what you're seeing is Paul's theology. He actually addresses the church with his heaviest artillery. He'll actually come strongest at the people of God saying, why didn't anyone do anything? Because for Paul, what's at stake here is not merely individual reputations, but God's very source of how he's bringing redemption on the earth. God, he, Paul actually addresses the people as a whole for he says, this is how God sees us now. So this is how I believe that we need, really need to see ourselves as well as home church. We're, a, we're one body. We function together. So the flow of today, so you can kind of get a picture, is um, essentially... There's three sections, and this just helps us. You can stay with me. The first few verses, Paul's going to do what he's done in verses 1 to 10. He's going to describe our position as Gentiles, which means non-Jew. Okay, if you never heard of that, it's non-Jew. Uh, the way that the Bible, especially before Christ, the way the world was basically separated was Jew and Gentile. Really simply, that means Jew and non-Jew. Okay, so I would venture to say most of us in this room are considered Gentiles. Uh, I actually know of only one, um, Joe, other than that, which he's not here today, but we're, the rest of us are Gentiles. We have a picture of Ephesians 2 in our, in our body when uh, Joe is here, Jew and Gentile coming together. Do you know that there was a day when that couldn't happen? It's, it's an amazing, it, I, I, again, I admit that I, like, I lack an understanding and appreciation of what has actually happened, but there was a day, and hopefully we'll, we'll appreciate a little more at the end of today, that we couldn't enter in like that. So here's what Paul does. He's going to describe who we were as Gentiles prior to Christ. Then by the end of this passage, he says, you who are far off, strangers to covenants of promise, without hope, without God, you are now literally the temple of God. And you're like, what? How did this happen? Well, right smack in the middle is what Christ has done and then the uh, subsequent outpouring of the Spirit. Christ has broken every barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And by the Spirit, we have now become one new man, okay? So that's the journey. Who we were before, Christ blows up the barrier, who we now are after. Amen? Got me? Last thing, I admit as well that some of this language can seem a bit archaic. <laughs> and I think that's important. I, I, I get it. Um, it not only sounds archaic, for some it can sound even borderline barbaric. <laughs> we're talking about circumcision, uh, uncircumcision, the blood of Jesus, Israel. Again, for many, there's like, there's not really a grid for this. In, uh, and it can be challenging sometimes to, to fully appreciate it. But my hope is that we would see that these things are foundational to the faith and that uh, I'm not going to flesh out all those in detail, but just provide some summary and really see some application for what it means for us, us today. All right.
So let's look at verse 11, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. I want to make sure everyone's there. It's on the screen as well. All right, this first section, verse 11 to 13. Paul writes, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh. Okay, just stop for a moment. Paul says that at one time. I just want to bring your attention that this is a consistent theme in the book of Ephesians. You may be noticing Paul's constantly saying formally or you once or at one time. In the beginning of this chapter, we once were dead in our sins and trespasses. We once were slaves to the passions of of our flesh. We talked about that last week. He's constantly writing who we once were. He's painting an incredible picture of a before and after. All right, everyone loves a good before and after. This is the best one ever. (laughs) So Paul reminds us again of where we were before, but this time in our standing as a, before the people of God. So he says, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Okay, stop again. So what this is, is circumcision was the mark of the old covenant. Okay, but notice that he keeps emphasizing it was a mark of the flesh. That does not mean sinful, but what it means is by human, it's, it was humanistic. It was uh, by, by the hand of flesh means it was by the hand of man, okay? Now, God instructed, but ultimately it was very natural. Why that's important is because we're no longer defined by things of the flesh. Paul's going to say there's a new marker on people's lives. We no longer distinguish and differentiate between the natural. I don't base who you are before God on skin color education, but the Spirit of God is the great equalizer. So we're moving out of fleshly distinctions into the Spirit of God now. That's the age of the Spirit. That's where he'll go. It's not that circumcision of the flesh was bad, but it was not the fullest sense of what God was after. Now he wants a spiritual circumcision, which is where the heart has been set apart. So here you go. He says in uh, verse 12, or I'm sorry, he calls, I want to bring this up as well, that the Gentiles were called the uncircumcision by what is the circumcision. So Jews were circumcised. Gentiles were not. Now, what, when they say this, they're saying that this was a term used by Jews. It's important to understand where we're going today, that they use this as a, as a term of um, scorn. It was an offensive way. It really, it was, a, it was a, a label that was putting them down, saying, we're the circumcised and you're the uncircumcised. And all I want you to see is that Israel was truly privileged. There's no doubt about it. They, God in his sovereignty had selected Israel. There's no doubt for them to be a, a blessing to the nations. Their privilege was real. Their failure was in their arrogance and their pride over their privilege. And I just want you to know that a lot of church hurt and a lot of things that have happened in the history is because we've abused privilege from God. Every privilege from God is a means to go low to lift up other people. The whole purpose of Israel being set apart was not for them to say, look at us, but that's what happened. Instead, it was for them to actually humble themselves, use the blessings of God to ultimately be a light to the nations. And where Israel will fail, Jesus, the true Israel, will use the ultimate privilege, the Son of God, will lay it all down in order to lift up us who are outsiders. Amen? So whatever God has blessed you with, jobs, whatever it is, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing, Paul says in the beginning of this, right? What is the purpose of that? Not to look down on an outsider now, but actually say, God, how can I use this position to actually serve and be a blessing to others? All right, so then verse 12, he says, remember, and now he's going to list five things, listen, of who we were. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, That's number one, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel 
and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God. Those are our five descriptions. And then he says, without God in the world. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, by the blood of Jesus. So here's, I just want you to, and then we're going to, I want you to see this and we'll unpack it. Paul gives these five descriptive terms of a Gentile prior to Christ. But in verse 13, he summarizes it by saying, but you who are once far off. Far off for Paul is like the, the summary or the, the word that becomes the totality of those five things. What does it mean to be separated from Christ, uh, alienated from the, the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, all those things? Paul says it means far off. And my hope, just for a moment right now, is that God would grant us the grace to really understand how far off we were in order that we would marvel at the effectiveness of Christ's blood. For as far off as we were, the sole remedy is that by the blood you've been brought near. What does that mean? It means you're no longer separated from Christ. You're no longer foreigners to the covenant, strangers to the covenant. You're no longer alienated from the commonwealth. You and I no longer live without hope and without God. Why? Because of the blood. Nothing else, nothing else could change this except for what Christ has done. So let's look at, let's look at these five things. Remember that at that time you were, number one, separated from Christ. I believe that this is, there's actually an order that Paul takes here. And I believe the first thing is most important because the next four things that follow is really the fruit of this one thing. Everything flows from being separated from Christ, which is why the sole remedy and solution is to be brought near by Christ. But the first thing he says is that we were separated from Jesus. Now, I think what Paul's saying here is more than we were born and we didn't know about God, because we could say that of our own lives today. But I think what he's talking about is this is prior to the coming of, of the Messiah. He's referencing something before Jesus. And I believe that what he's really getting at is that there was a time when us, Gentiles, lived without any basis of the messianic hope. Think about this. We felt the effects of living in a fallen, broken world, but we had no understanding of God's plan, of what he was doing, bringing a seed who would ultimately crush the head of the serpent and liberate his creation. Paul's saying there's a time when you had no basis. You lived in the, in the brokenness of this life, but you had no messianic hope. And then he says we were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. What, what, what does that mean? I, he's speaking of citizenship. So here's the thing, because we didn't know Jesus, we were alienated from citizenship of Israel. You say, okay, big deal. But, but here's the emphasis. When you're a citizen of a nation or a people group, you get the privileges and blessings that come with that. So really what Paul is saying is because we were separated from Christ, we also were excluded from Israel, and as a result, we could not partake of the blessings and rights and privileges that come with being a citizen of Israel. What are those namely? I actually think namely it's going to be this, that we were strangers to the covenants of promise is what he's going to say next. But all of us at one point, we were cut off from God's people. And as a result, think about all the blessings we've been talking about, adoption and, and redemption and the Holy Spirit. We, had, we could not partake of that. Outsiders to it. And on another note, I, I want to just mention here that some, especially right now what's going on in the world, are asking uh, and I get it, if you're kind of new to the church, why is Israel so important? Um, this doesn't give a full answer, and we're not going to go in that direction today. But all I want to say is just from this text, 
A major reason why we pray for Israel and our hearts for Israel is because what we're doing is we're recognizing God's plan of redemption and his wisdom of how he brought it. When we pray for Israel, we're saying, God, we bless and honor your plan of how you decided to bring salvation to the world. Regardless if we fully get it, this is how God has unfolded it. Amen? So salvation for you and me did not begin in a manger. Salvation did not begin at the baptism of Jesus. You've got to go thousands of years back where there's a long history of God calling out the most unlikely people, saying in the midst of dominant empires, I'm going to choose you, and through you, a seed, a man will be born who will redeem the entire world. So we bless Israel because this is the seed came through the Jewish people, and God has now brought us into it. Romans 9, if you don't know, Romans 9 says, if salvation came to the nations to gentiles through israel's disobedience what would happen if israel obeyed what would happen if there was a mass conversion of jews to christ as the messiah if their disobedience still led to a blessing to the earth can you imagine if they all turn so we pray for israel we pray not just because of what's happening but because this is the way god has has instructed and how he's laid it out for us amen all right stay with me i promise we'll get in some application in a moment so then he says, we were alienated from citizenship of Israel, is what he's saying. We were strangers to the covenants of promise. Like, again, I admit in my own life, the reason why I'm probably not provoked as much as I should in what I've been brought into is I, I don't really grasp to the fullest extent the covenants and what was promised and what I once was not able to partake of, but now I can. I, I give you another homework assignment. You found your Rachel? Amen. <laughs> Go study, go study, look up the different covenants and see what's wrapped up in those. And just think for a moment that there was a time where we couldn't walk in that and now you have been brought in. It says we were strangers to the covenants, plural. There's many. Here, here's what Abraham's covenant, that God would bless the nations through a family. You've been brought into that family because you put your faith in his seed, which is ultimately Jesus. David's covenant, you can go in 2 Samuel 7. I love David's covenant. But I, here's what I love is if you go throughout the Old Testament, you'll find it's called Davidic is David. Davidic covenantal language, it's, it's all throughout the Old Testament in these obscure places, and it's all things, these beautiful truths wrapped up in David's covenant. And we once could not partake of it. Consider this. I love it. Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55 is one of these great blessings of salvation because of the suffering Messiah. So we live now in the reality of Isaiah 55. Here's how it starts. It gives this language of salvation in, um, in kind of drinking. It says, all you who are thirsty, come and drink. It says, come and drink by wine and milk, which speaks of blessing like prosperity. It says, come and partake and buy. You who have no money, come and buy these things that cost a lot of money. <laughs> how do you buy with no money? Well, someone else had to pay the price. You can drink limitless milk and honey, which represents a blessing to the highest degree because someone has paid that fare for you. Someone has paid the bill for you. And then it goes on to say, do not partake and eat of that which does not satisfy. But again, God invites us. And then he closes by saying this, Isaiah 55, verse 3. He says, incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Listen carefully. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. Part of the Davidic covenant was that if you're thirsty, come. If your heart's empty, come. If, if you're barren inside and you recognize it, you can come to 
the rivers of living water. You can drink from the, 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 the river of delight and find your heart satisfied. But there was a time when I could not drink from that river. <laughs> Outside of a few exceptions, the Bible speaks of Rahab, Nineveh. We know God was working amongst it, but for the most part, it was through the Jewish people. Now God says the doors have been opened. Salvation has been brought forth to every person. If you're thirsty, you can come and drink this morning. If your heart's empty, you can be satisfied in the Lord. We get to partake in the new covenant of the Spirit. <laughs> Guys, this is like mind-blowing that we get to partake. God says, you know what the whole Bible is after? The new covenant. And what is the whole point of the new covenant, Jeremiah 31? That God, by, him, by his own presence, would come and live inside of you, and he would write his word into your heart. What does that mean? It means God speaks means now today you can live by the voice of God right now. If you've ever heard God speak to you, if you've ever felt the joy of hearing your shepherd's voice, know that that is a result of the new covenant. I thank God for these holy scriptures, but that's actually not the new covenant. The new covenant is the spirit of God living in my heart, speaking to me, helping me and leading me to apply these things that are written and the things that God has laid out. I say this often, you will never find anywhere in the scriptures that it says, Andrew, you should go to Mastic Beach. <laughs> you will not find, how did I know that? Because I'm living in the blessing of the new covenant. God speaks today. So much more to say in that, but what a joy that we all get to hear God's voice. His voice is spirit and life. The sheep know his shepherd's voice. We get to partake. All right, and then he says, finally he closes out with saying, without hope and without God in the world. All right, so those are those last two things. We were without hope and without God. So here's the summary that Paul gives us, that prior to the Lord coming into our life, we were Christless, stateless, hopeless, godless, okay? Now, why I bring that up is because Paul, this strikes me. I want to speak on some application here. Paul says the word twice, remember, remember. And Guys, for me, when I hear these things, I say, what are you talking about, Paul? You want us to remember that we were Christless, stateless, godless, hopeless. And that's exactly what Paul's saying. And I would say, isn't that pretty bleak to just think and meditate on those things? Isn't that, isn't that counter to what we should do? In fact, I can actually point to other points in Scripture where Paul says to do the complete opposite. Paul will actually tell us to forget everything and keep running after the Lord. So can we just hit the pause button for a moment and talk about this? Because this is really important. I want to give some pastoral advice because I actually think a lot of people, myself included, get really jammed up when we're told not to forget who we are, but then in doing that, we're so overwhelmed with condemnation, we can't move forward. So we say, Paul, what is it? Do you want us to remember the sins and the way that we used to live and how far we were, or do you want us to move forward in you? Well, I would say, well, let me say it this way. Philippians 3 is where Paul gives us an, actually a different piece of advice. In Philippians 3, Paul writes about his impressive resume prior to the Lord, a Pharisee of Pharisee, a, a Hebrew of Hebrews, great zeal, and then he gives this amazing statement. He says, but it's all dung in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ. And then he likens himself to a runner and says now, he says, I'm running this race, and my whole life purpose is to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. In other words, he says, what do I live for now? I want to know why he stopped me on the road to Damascus. <laughs> You ever stop and think about that? Where did God first meet you? Where did he touch you? You say, Pastor, what, what is my goal in life? Take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of you. Why did God meet me dead in my tracks when I was in addiction killing my life? My life purpose now is to take hold of that for which he took hold of my life. 
I want to know why grace arrested me when I was least deserving of it. And Paul says, this is what I run after now. And then he likens himself, as I said, to a runner. And he says, as a runner, he says, I strain forward for the prize, which is that for which Christ took hold of him. And then he says this, listen, forgetting what is behind me. I strain forward. Now Paul tells us in Philippians 3, do not remember, forget everything behind you, everything part of your former life, everything you used to boast in, forget it all and keep your eyes fixed on the Lord. It would be the same mistake like a runner who's approaching the finish line to look over his shoulder. That's the last thing a runner wants to do. So when I read these texts, I'm like, what in the world do we do, Paul? I'm confused. Are we supposed to remember or are we supposed to forget? And maybe you've been in that. Well, here's what I'd say, and maybe this will be helpful to you, that you have to remember that I actually believe Philippians 3 and Ephesians 2 is after the same goal. Even though Ephesians 2 doesn't use the same language, the whole goal that Paul wants is for nothing to hinder us in running after God. He makes it clear in Philippians, but in Ephesians 2, he's doing the same thing. Except this time, he says there is actually a place that you can remember. Providing that, here's what this point of remembrance is, not so that you would get heavy and stop running after God, but in Ephesians 2, Paul says, I want you to remember in order that you would magnify the grace of God in your life, so that joy would be intensified, so that you would actually pursue and run after God in greater measure. In other words, you should remember things of your past. Paul said it's appropriate to do that as long as the end result is it's magnifying grace, fueling your heart with joy, and actually causing you to run harder after God. If your remembrance is causing you to be sapped of strength, filled with filled with doubt, causing a, what feels like a separation from God, I would say you're no longer in biblical remembrance, you're in condemnation. So there really is a place to remember, but Paul says, be careful. Remember what you've been through as long as it's actually fueling a deeper love for God and passion. If ever your remembrance crosses over to this other line where you feel heavy, where you feel like empty, depressed, Paul says, no, you've reached something. Now you need to forget and keep running after the Lord. So here's my thing. Here's, what's, here's the challenge is that our trigger points are all different. <laughs> this, is the, this is the challenge. I can't tell you where your point of crossing over, where you've meditated too much on your past, where it's actually hindering you from running after God. That's something you have to work out with the Lord. In fact, I would say this. Not only are all of our trigger points different, but you'll find that your, that point will change in your own life from season to season. And here, this is... I'll, I'll be honest, kind of natural wisdom, I, but take it. I would say this. If you're in a really hard season, really hard, it might not be wise to really meditate on all of the brokenness in your life. You may need to forget for a season and look forward and think about the hope to which he's called you. Yet at the same time, if you find your heart cold, calloused, if you're getting cynical to God, like, gr- like you lacking gratitude in your heart, you find anger towards things, it may be wise to get before God and say, oh, God, Cause me to remember where I once was. Lord, cause me to think about where I once was in my life and how you've touched me. Amen? So that's my understanding of remembrance. I don't think Paul is calling us to remember in order that we would wallow in that place and stay there. Um, One other thing I want to mention here. You guys with me? One other thing I think is important. Man, there's so many many things to teach on this. Um, uh, This is important. The gospel, and this is going to connect to what Paul just wrote about us being outsiders. The gospel is not just a message that we once heard. It is a message. It is. We proclaim the gospel, and behind that message is a man. So it's not just these ideas. But 
Sometimes we can think of the gospel as this initial message to enter into the kingdom, and from there we now grow past the gospel. But I want you to know what Paul's presenting to us in this book, in Ephesians, is that the gospel is actually a governing power for every area of your life. Which means this message was not just an initial message, but actually it provides a model and a grace to change and touch every area of your life. So for example, we'll see in the weeks to come, Paul will write about marriage. Paul does not just merely say, hey, do better at marriage. What is he going to do? He's going to point back to the gospel. And he's going to say this gospel modeled something and now provides a power and a grace within it by the Spirit of God to begin to treat your spouse differently in light of the gospel. In Ephesians 4.32, he'll call us to be kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving to one another. Here's the key. As God in Christ forgave us. What's he doing? He's saying, look at the gospel. He's saying this should change now the way that we live. Everything that the Lord has done through the gospel of Jesus Christ is meant to govern and touch every area of our life. Why I say that is because if Paul, I believe a Pauline statement would say, be mindful of how you treat outsiders, remembering how God treated you when you were an outsider. Now, this is very important. What is an outsider to our life? Well, we can start on a, on a small level. It's someone who's outside of your immediate family, outside of your ethnicity, outside of your educational background. Be careful how you treat someone Remember how God treated you when we were foreigners and strangers to the things of God. To raise it up a level, think about us as a church. Who, who could be an outsider to us as a church? An unbeliever could be an outsider. Paul would say, be careful how you treat an outsider. Do you not remember that you too were once outside to my ways and God in mercy came to us? They say, yeah, but they treat us, they're an enemy to what God's doing. Yeah, we were enemies to the cross of Jesus Christ. And while we're yet still enemies, Christ died for us. See, this, the gospel has to inform every area. I can't approach it with natural thinking, but I have to say, wait a minute. In light of what he's done in my life, how should I treat others? The, the application raises higher and higher. Think about it as a nation. We need to say, wait a minute. How do we treat foreigners and outsiders to this nation? For we too were once foreigners and outsiders to the nation of Israel. And God did not stiff arm us out, but he made a way. So here's the point is that we have to feel that. We have to be careful, I think, to embrace very black and white things. I find that the gospel does this. It takes these two decisions that we love to create. We love to create camps and say you're either with us or against us. Jesus steps on the scene. He'll affirm certain things in both groups, then also confront others and then other things in both and says, I present a new way now. That is equally offensive to both groups. We would say if Jesus came, he'd be solely with us. And then he comes and says, ah, I honor what you're doing here, but this is not of me. And then he goes to the other group and says, I honor what you're thinking here, but that's not of me. Follow me this way. So we got to think about that as we deal with outsiders. Amen? All right. Here we go. Let's go into verse 13 to 18. This is where Christ breaks the barrier now. Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, we once were, but now, today, this is our portion. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one, Jew and Gentile, been made into one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Why do we cherish this body so much? Because it required his body to be broken to produce this body. He laid everything down to form this body. We take it very serious. We strive. Paul says make every effort for unity. I promise you this. Unity will always be under attack. The work of Satan in, the, in the Paul's letters, he's always coming around looking to put seeds of discord into hearts. 
We're human. We're going to rub each other the wrong way. There's nothing we can do about that. But what we are responsible for is how do we handle that seed once it's there? We have to, we have to face it. We have to confront it. If not, I found it over and over in my life, that thing will grow. <laughs> Until one day you step in the same room with that person and your blood is boiling because you've been festering on this thing rather than dealing with the way that Lord has, has called us to. So Christ has come to bring peace with him but also with one another. And ver- the end of verse 14 says that he's done this by breaking down in his broken body, in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility, verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. All right, let's stop for a moment. So what does it say he did here? Between Jew and Gentile, Christ broke down the dividing wall of hostility. Now, if you like history, you'll enjoy this part. Uh, there are... <laughs> There are basically three understandings of what this dividing wall of hostility, what it means. One understanding is that Paul is merely making a natural metaphor. Uh, So, for example, you may say when you have division with someone, you may say, man, I just can't get through to them. Uh, What you're saying is you're giving imagery of that there's this, like, invisible barrier there. So some say that's all Paul's doing. He's just using this imagery of that there was a real dividing wall. It wasn't a real wall, but it was between Jew and Gentile, and that would be true. Uh, The second thing is no, what Paul is saying is Christ broke this dividing wall of hostility, which is the Mosaic law, not in its entirety, but specifically the things that restricted Jew and Gentile from coming together, like circumcision, like dietary laws. Remember, Jews could not eat with Gentiles. There's a lot of things that go with that. Some say that's what, that's what he's talking about. And I believe Jesus did do that. But I believe it's the, the third reason I want to bring up that is really fascinating. And I think just like, There's a measure of just awe at just the depth of God's word, which is I think Paul is actually making a reference to the temple of the day and to an actual dividing wall. And why do I say that? Number one is because by the end of this chapter, by the end of this text, you're going to see that Paul's going to say we are now the new temple of God. He's got a heavy emphasis on temple language. And then also when we think about where Paul was writing this letter, which is prison and why he was, it's really fascinating to bring it all together. All right. So let me just flesh this thing out that Paul's making a temple reference here to this dividing wall. Um, During this time, you had what's known as Herod's temple. Okay, Herod was a Jew who really sold out his people and really worked for the Romans. The Jews hated the Herodian family. If ever you read the Gospels, they were some of the biggest opponents to Jesus, John the Baptist. Um, but that's what they were. They were actually Jewish who were now serving the Romans and really serving as a local ruler. So he called this temple Herod's temple. It very much looked like the temples of past, but I'm going to show you one distinguishing mark. So here's, here's what happened. In, in the days of like Solomon, there's basically three primary parts of the temple. There is the Holy of Holies, which is where Yahweh's presence rested on the Ark of the Covenant. There was the holy place or um, the inner sanctuary, the inner court, which was where the priest could go. And then you had the outer courts. Okay, those are your three main areas. In Herod's temple, it was identical except one main difference. That outer court was parsed into three, three distinct areas. So it was called the outer courts, but now there were three courts within that outer court. Can you follow that? So what that outer court now had was the court of the Jews, which was only for Jewish men. You had the court of women, which was only for Jewish women. They could not cross over. Women cannot go into the men. And then you had the court of the Gentiles. Okay? So check this out real quick. Can we put this picture up? give you a visual. Can you guys see that all right? I hope I don't lose the mic for a second if I come back here. So can you guys still hear me? 
All right, louder. I might stay right back here the whole time. So what I'm saying is this, see this whole outer area that goes on the other side as well? That is now the court of the Gentiles in Herod's temple. If you come into that intersection, go beyond that wall, that's where you would have the court of the Jews and the court of the women inside these walls. Do you guys see that? And it's hard to point. So out here is court of Gentiles. You'd have to go through that wall, and then you'd have the court of the Jews and the court of women. And then as you go through that big structure, that's where you'll go into where the priest could go, and then eventually the Holy of Holies. The point is this, is that what I think Paul is referencing when he says the dividing wall of hostility is that massive wall right here. Paul is referencing this wall that goes around. Do you guys see that? Why? So here, here's what happened. Josephus, he's a first century Jewish historian. He writes extensively about this wall and how it was a partition that did not allow foreigners to come in. What's amazing is that we've actually found two pieces of this wall with Greek inscriptions on them. One was in 1871. The other one was in 1935. Um, one of them is actually in a museum right now in Istanbul, Turkey. And here's what it says, if you go to that museum right now, on that wall that separated the court of Gentiles from the court of the Jews, it says this, no foreigner, meaning Gentile, no foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. So trespassing was not, you weren't just prosecuted for trespassing, you were executed. <laughs> Joe, how would that pass over in the legal system today? It's very hard to understand the tension because I want you to see if Christ can break this barrier, there's not a single barrier that he cannot break today. The, the, the divide was so strong, guys, that it was said that if a Jewish boy or woman intermarried with a Gentile, the family would right away carry out their son or daughter, the Jewish son or daughter's um, uh, um, what do you call it? funeral because to marry a Gentile was the same thing as basically death. It was equivalent to death. It was said, it was an unwritten law of these days, that if a Jew would see a Gentile woman in the process of giving birth, they were not to assist, for if they would, they would be held liable for bringing another Gentile into the world. Now, just know this. It went both ways. But the point is, this barrier was intense. So this gets really interesting, too. In Acts 21-22, Paul's in Jerusalem, and he's about to get lynched up by a mob. They want to beat him and lynch him up. And you say, why? And here's what they accuse him of. They said, he brought a Gentile into our court. Right in Acts 21. And what's really fascinating, it wasn't any Gentile. It was an Ephesian Gentile. So Paul, they bind him up. He's with these Roman guards. They want to kill him because he, they said he brought a Gentile into the court of the Jews. And Paul, standing on these, on these steps, bound up, begins to preach the gospel everyone's listening. They don't bat an eye as he says, Jesus is the one. But at the very end of his sermon, Paul says, this Christ who got a hold of my life, he's now called me to go far away to preach to the Gentiles. As soon as Paul says, I've been preached to the Gentiles, the rioters go insane again. Because this was the one they could not fathom that God was bringing in Gentiles. So what happens from here? Paul goes into his house arrest and this is where he'll spend the next few years. And where does Paul pen the book of Ephesians? while he's on house arrest in Rome. In other words, the book that we're reading, Paul's in jail, ultimately because he preached Christ to the Gentiles. And now he's writing and he's saying, listen, his audience, if anyone knew that nothing signified this barrier more than this wall, it was his readers. And yet now he's saying that barrier is shattered. It's broken. 
Christ has literally laid down this wall that that which seemed impossible is possible for two people groups to come together. I, listen, I want you to know that Christ and the Spirit is the ultimate barrier breaker. Jesus deals death blows to every barrier and wall that could be put up between people. This is what it means, the gospel of peace. And hear me, this is the warning for all of us, is that Christ has broken the most significant barrier. And we may say, well, Jew and Gentile doesn't matter at all today. And it doesn't like it did then. But we need to be careful that we do not insert other barriers in place of the one that Christ has broken down. Like one of the, one of the clearest ones today is denominationalism. I'm not against denominations. It's denominationalism. Whenever you put ism at the end of the word, that's where everything gets distorted. Nothing wrong with race. God created that. Racism is the issue, which means the ism means you feel superior to another people group because of the position that you're in. It's grievous to the heart of God that he has shattered every barrier, but now we have denominationalism saying we're superior than you because this is our view on this certain uh, theological doctrine. Christ lays down his life to remove this, and we've put another one up in his place. It's grievous to God that there's barriers of race that there used to be. Again, I say it again. Like, I, 50 years ago, we couldn't even gather like this. <laughs> it's incredible. Like, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. Gender, there's issues of gender where you can only play this role. I believe these things are grievous to the heart of God. He's broken every barrier. Lord, may we strive to live in the unity that the Spirit of God brings. Please hear me this. When, when, when sin entered the world, the present age was initiated. The present age is marked by sin, suffering, brokenness. That age will exist until Christ returns. Part of what happened in the garden is that when sin entered in, what did Adam and Eve do? They came against one another. Part of a mark of the present age that's marked by sin is, is power struggle, the, the desire to want to dominate someone else, the desire to want to have authority over someone else, and that, that power struggle is only intensified as humanity grows and begins to separate and you have different tribes and tongues and nations begin to grow. All of a sudden, there's deep hatred and animosity between groups. That's a mark of the present age. But in the midst of the present age, Christ broke in with the Spirit. And the age of the Spirit is saying those distinctions may remain, but they're completely irrelevant now. This is so... Galatians 3.28 is the Magna Carta of the age of the Spirit. What does Galatians 3.28 say? There is neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free, for we are all one in Christ. What is it saying? Not that we're all the same. That doesn't mean by we're all one, we're all the same, but it means that we are equal now in authority and anointing. We're equal in privilege. We all have firstborn sonship, which was so significant of that day which means to the degree that we allow this natural fleshly distinctions to operate in this body, to the degree that we have prejudices and biases towards people because of their theology or whatever it may be, all that is is that's an indicator that we're still living in the present age. But to the degree that we can actually see that those differences, although they remain, they, don't, they no longer define who we are, is a sign that we're now moving in the age of the Spirit. To the degree that we can actually see Every race, every color, every gender be empowered to run after God in this house is a sign that we're actually a spirit-filled people. Amen. So let's finish this out here. Verse 16. He says, and, men, and that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Verse 17. 
And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Make no mistake about it. We were far off as Gentiles, but those who were near is a reference to Jews. There is only one way to salvation. It is Jesus Christ. Jesus made this clear. No one is saved by their family heritage. Jew and Gentile both need the Lord. Know this. There's only three groups of people in the world, what Paul is saying here, I believe. He says there's unbelieving Jews, unbelieving Gentiles, and the church. Those are your three categories now. And he says, we needed peace preached to us. How does Jesus preach peace to us? How did he preach it to the church at Ephesus? He had already ascended. (laughs) Every time, uh, either his work is always preaching peace, which is true, or I think it's every time we preach the gospel, it's Christ preaching through us. And so he says, we who were far off and those who were near needed peace, verse 18. Through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Guys, every one of us who were far off, you now have access to God. You who are captive, I was bound, (laughs) I was a slave, you now have access to God. This is what he's been after, that you could come to him. And this access, you don't crawl into the presence of God, you don't slink into the presence of God, you come as a son, as a daughter, you come as a rightful citizen of his kingdom now. All that that was, because of Christ, you now belong in the Lord because of Christ standing on your life. And then verse 19, this last section, here's our description of who we are now because of what the Lord has done. Verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Not E.T. aliens. (laughs) Foreigners to to the privileges. What are we now? We're actually citizens of heaven. Like children of the kingdom of God now. So you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. You're not second-class citizens here. Fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Next week, we will preach an entire thing just on verse 20. We're going to unpack what exactly that means. Verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And finally, verse 22, in him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. In the end, we who are far off are now literally God's habitation on the earth. When God says that me and you are his temple, he is not merely saying we're going to have a new location for services. <laughs> we are the temple for the Jews and for the ancient Near Eastern culture. Every group had temples. The temple was the place where heaven and earth overlapped. It is the place where if you said, I want to hear and see the divine, every culture would say, go to the temple. That's where God was resting. It doesn't matter what culture you're in. doesn't matter what gods they were worshiping. Everyone said you must go to the temple. We literally are the connection point, the meeting place of heaven on earth. If people say, I want to meet God, God says, go to my temple. Go to my people, and you will see me through them. And the temple, because of that, it's heaven on earth. The temple is not a place of just trying to bring people out of the earth into it. The whole idea is that heaven on earth would be released through this temple into the nations. How is this, it says this temple is a structure, yet at the same time it's growing and being built up? Well, you're going to see as we go into Ephesians 4, the fivefold ministry. It literally says the fivefold ministry through that, through the gifts of the Spirit, this church is being built up. How are we built? We come together by the Spirit and through the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. God is building us up, strengthening us into a mature body of Christ. Oh, I think it's just amazing. Just so you know as well, the temple is deeply connected to creation. You've heard me say this many times, 
But the, the original creation, although it was a real creation, is also imagery of the temple. And that's why when Jesus steps on the scene in John 1, the new creation is about to start. And it says in verse 14 that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, dwelt among us. He templed among us. Every time there's creation, there has to be a temple. Which is why in the end of all things, Revelation 21, the new heaven, new earth, what do you see? You see God's people coming down, and it's a picture of this temple. The point is this. When Paul says that we are the temple of God, he's saying the new creation, it's upon you. It started. God is renewing things right in your midst. You're not just waiting for a distant day, but God's whole plan is unfolding before our eyes right now. Thank you, Lord. (laughs) I have other things. We'll save it for... uh, for next week, I want to, um, uh, next week I really want to unpack the, the verse 20, and uh, I think it'll be absolutely beautiful to just see uh, exactly the meaning behind that. But I want us to, um, before we have ministry time for anyone, I want us to take communion together in light of the blood and the broken body of Jesus Christ um, as we celebrate the fact that we were far off and brought near. We have confidence to come before his presence. We're so happy you could join us on the Home Church Podcast. We pray this week's message encourages you to behold the Lord Jesus and bring his kingdom wherever you go. You can visit us online at myhomechurch.org, subscribe to our YouTube channel, or follow us on social media. If you would like to give to this ministry, text the amount to 84321. Bless you.